about good and perfect gifts come from God. Good and perfect gifts come from God. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to give you a little background before we get into James. James chapter 1, verse 1. Glory to God. James chapter 1, verse 1. Hallelujah. Amen, amen. If you don't have a Bible, amen. We need some Bibles out. Ushers. Oh, I don't need a Bible. <laughs> People that don't have a Bible, like in front of the rower here, need a Bible. Already <laughs> hot. Amen, 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 amen. So James chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says to the what? Twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Amen? Now, if you can, since you have your B-I-B-L-E, underline or circle the name James. Underline or circle the name James. Now I want you to underline servant of God. Underline servant of God. Then I want you to underline scattered abroad. Scattered abroad. So let's begin with James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Amen. And the reason we say he was the half-brother of Jesus is because James and Jesus had the same mother, but they did not have the same father. Jesus' father was God. James' father was Joseph. But when you study the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus had four brothers and he had sisters. Matter of fact, we read about that in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Or it knows what he says here. Matthew 13, say amen when you get there. Amen, since y'all can't cheat today. It's not on the screen yet. So Matthew 13, 55, maybe to get to before we get to the end of the message. Sometimes we have technical difficulties. Matthew 13, 55, he says, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Then it says, and his brethren. It says, James, Jose, Simon, and who? Judas or Jude. See, James was a second son after Jesus. Come on, say amen, somebody. Now, listen to me now. Now, when you look at this family, you will find that it is a ministry family. Somebody say ministry family. And here we have an example of God doesn't just call individuals, but God calls entire families. He calls families. Tell your neighbor, he calls families. See, the Virgin Mary was called. 
her husband Joseph was called. And by the way, listen to me now. By the way, Joseph was not a poor carpenter. Say it again. Joseph was not a poor carpenter. They lived in Nazareth, Nazareth, which is which very near to Sephoris and the city of Sephora was the administrative center for Herod in North Israel. Amen? It was a very sophisticated, elegant city. It was called the Ornament of Galilee. Are you following me out here? Joseph worked there in a very high-level technical field or technical skill. He was not just a simple carpenter. Are you following me? Matter of fact, the Greek word for carpenter describes carpenter really describes a high-level technician. That's what that word carpenter means. It describes a high-level what? Technician. This is a person who was known for making jewelry, making furniture, and very elegant things. And he was handsomely paid for it. Are you following me out here? He was not a poor man. Tell your neighbor, he was not a poor man. But the question arises is, why did God choose Joseph? Why did God choose Joseph? Did God randomly choose him to be the father of Jesus? Tell your neighbor, no. Come on, tell another neighbor, no. Understand this. Money is the test for all of us. Let me say it again. Money is the test for all of us. Are you following me out here? See, Joseph had been found faithful with money. He managed his skills. He managed his profession. And he managed his money. Are you following me out here? And God knew because he could be trusted on that level, God could trust him with something greater. Oh, come on. Y'all with me in here. Why? This was a man God could trust with money. God could trust this man. He had shown himself to be faithful. Well, Mary was a virgin Mary. And Joseph was chosen to be what? The father of this home, right? Jesus was the firstborn. The next born was who? James, who eventually became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Are you with me out here? Now, Judas or Jude is the one that his brother Jude, he says Judas, but it's Jude. He was the one who wrote the book of Jude. He was the brother of James. Well, don't believe me? Go to Jude 1.1. Y'all can cheat again. Jude 1 1. <laughs> it says, Jude, the what? The servant of Jesus Christ, and what? And what? Brother of James to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So Jude was the brother of who? James. Then when you look back in Matthew 13 56, it says, and his sisters. And his what? So Jesus had sisters. 
He said, are they, not, are they not all with us? Whence then has this man had all these things? See, the Greek word is plural, so he had at least two sisters. So he had four brothers and what? Two sisters. Now listen to me now. When you read the writings of the early church fathers, you will find that even the sisters eventually married men in the ministry. So the entire family was called by God. Somebody said the entire family. Now, if you study the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll find that God is regularly in the business of calling entire families. Oh, somebody should say hallelujah. If you begin with Noah. Noah was called with his sons, and together they built the ark. Oh, come on, say amen, somebody. You can look at Jacob, who, had, who, listen, who with his sons had a call of God on him, the 12 tribes of Israel. If you come to the New Testament, it's loaded with examples of families that were called as a whole. Come on, we already see Mary and Joseph, but there are many other examples. Look at Timothy. His grandmother was a believer. His mother was a believer. Look at 2 Timothy 1.5. What's it say here? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, it says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and thy mother who? Eunice, and I am persuaded that where? In thee also. Are you listening to me out here? So he calls family. They found, listen, they found this second century document that recorded the names of all the early pastors in Asia. So it is possible to know the names of all the pastors, pastors particularly in Smyrna. And see, Smyrna was just 35 miles from Ephesus. But who was the pastor of Ephesus? Timothy. That wasn't a pop quiz, y'all. But Timothy was the pastor of what? Ephesus. Now, the pastor of Smyrna was a, name, was a man named Stratius, who was put in the ministry during the time Paul was in Ephesus. Stratius was the natural-born brother of Timothy. So you have Timothy 35 miles away pastoring a church in this big city, Ephesus. So you have the younger brother pastoring the bigger church, and yet Stratius, his elder brother, is pastoring a smaller church 35 miles away. But both of them are in the ministry. Somebody said they're in the ministry. This is an example of a whole family that had been called by God or had the call of God on their lives. The whole family. Another one, think about Barnabas. He had a nephew whose name we know as John Mark. Look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10 says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. And who? Markers, sister's son to who? 
Barnabas, touching whom we receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. See, John Mark's mother was a believer. He what? She was a what? Guess what? She was a believer who owned a big apartment in the city of Jerusalem. She's mentioned in Acts chapter 12, verse 11. Turn there. You know when Peter was locked up and the angels came and let him out the gate? Guess whose house he went to? It says, and when Peter was come to himself, he looked around and said, I'm out. <laughs> Amen. He said, now I know of a surety the Lord has sent his angels and delivered me out the hand of the Herod and from all the expectation of the people, the Jews. And when he had considered this thing, considered the thing, he came to the house of, came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together, what? Praying. See, a lot of ministry took place right in her house. Listen to this. In the upper room where Jesus served communion. That was the apartment of John Mark's mother. Where Pentecost took place. That was in the apartment of John Mark's mother. Matter of fact, when Jesus would come to Jerusalem with the disciples and they needed a place to stay, guess where they stayed? They stayed in that apartment. It's the place where they retreated, folks. Are y'all listening to me out here? So John Mark, as a young man, he grew up familiar with ministry. Oh, come on. He grew up in a house of prayer. Oh, you didn't hear what I just said. He grew up, and he grew up seeing Jesus come in the house. Come on, say amen, somebody. He's familiar with the ministry of Jesus because why? They were regularly at his home. Matter of fact, the call of God that was on his mother and his uncle also came on him, folks. Let's take a little further. Let's look at the apostle Paul. Everyone acknowledges that he was an apostle. But look at Romans 16, 7. Romans 16, 7. Are you there? It says, salute Andronicus or Junia. My what? My what? That's family. Kinsmen. This is a, and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles. So they were apostles. Who are also called in Christ, he said, even before me. See, there was an apostolic call on Paul's entire family. Are y'all listening to me? Now, the reason I went through all that is because why? Spiritual nepotism, it is all right. Let me say it again. Spiritual nepotism is all right. Why? Because God calls families. Somebody say God calls families. And see, we all have sons and daughters. And we endeavor to train them to play a role in ministry, folks. Oh, come on, say amen, somebody. So don't feel bad because God works in families, folks. Tell your neighbor he works in families. Come on, say he's working in my family. But 
don't you be the one that puts a negative thing in their heart about serving in the ministry. Why? Because I've had people tell their children that came to help, and we had children do this, the young men do this, something like that. They, I, heard, I had families, parents tell their, ch their children, stop doing so much for the church. They're not going to use my child. Don't you do all the work. You bring your butt home. Not realizing they have become a stumbling block of what God has called them to do. Because why? God calls families, folks. And that was the beginning of them serving God. Oh, I'm preaching good in here. Well, if you get a little closer, look at Bishop Butler. His son's a pastor. Now his daughter's a pastor. Come on, his, his other daughter, she's the, 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 the um, lawyer of the ministry. Son-in-laws are, are pastors. All of them are pastors. Come on, say amen, somebody. The entire family. His mother was my, my uh, school of ministry teacher. His father did, uh, did the grounds in the church. Are you with me out there? His brother was the music minister. His nephew is now pastoring the church in Smyrna, Georgia. Come on. All of them are what? They're called to the what? Ministry. If you look at my, look, look at my family, get, get a little closer. Come on. Amen. My daughter. Come on. I can see it in my family. My brother's deeply involved in his, in his church. My niece is deeply involved in Word of Faith in Southfield, along with her husband. Come on. My mother is considered a family evangelist. She's going to get the entire family saved. And then she's going to call me to do it. <laughs> Come on, say amen, somebody. Why? Because God works in families. God works in families. And believe it or not, you need to start having faith that God's going to work in your family and have your entire family doing something for God. Oh, y'all with me out there? Amen. So God works in families, and we now see this in James. And see, James was not a believer until after the resurrection. In fact, look at John chapter 7, verse 5. James was not a believer until after the resurrection. John 7, 5, it says, For neither did his what? Brother do what? They didn't believe in him. And see, they were not converted to after the resurrection. Amen? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. Because after the resurrection, it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. After the resurrection, it says, after that, he was seen of who? Isn't James his brother? He was seen of James, then of all the what? Apostles. It was at this point, James was converted and became a follower of Jesus. And he eventually became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Amen. So let's go back to James chapter 1, verse 1, because I want you to see how he identifies himself. 
James chapter 1, verse 1. Are you with me? So he said, James, they're what? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he said, James, a what? Servant of God. He calls himself what? A servant. Now the word servant here is the Greek word doulos. Somebody say doulos. Come on, somebody say doulos. And it refers to the lowest level servant or one who, who is completely sold out to do the will of someone else. Once again, it's the Greek word doulos. It refers to the lowest level servant or one who is completely sold out to do the will of what? Someone else. Now, he could have legitimately said James, the brother of Jesus. Come on. Why? Because he had a role that nobody else had. I'm his brother. Oh, come on. Say amen, somebody. But rather than use that to his advantage, what was important to him was the fact that he was sold out. And he was surrendered to his big brother, Jesus. I'm a servant. Somebody say, I'm a servant. So he says, James, a servant of God. A what? A what? Now I want you to underline that word and, because the word and is very important. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word and is very important. Somebody say and. It's very important. <laughs> Amen. The word and in the Greek is the word chi. The word chi here should be taken as a clarifying statement. Somebody say clarifying statement. Which means a more accurate translation would be James, a servant of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Took a while for some of y'all to get it. <laughs> James, the servant of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Get it yet? James, a servant of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it computing yet? <laughs> Understand this. The book of James is the oldest book in the New Testament. It was written before the year 50. Amen. And see, this is right here. This is the earliest declaration of Jesus' deity in the entire New Testament coming from the lips of Jesus' own brother. Are you following me out here? So he says, James, a servant of God, Kai, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, to the 12 tribes, which are what? Scattered abroad, greetings. To the what? 12 tribes, which are what? What are they? Scattered abroad. Now, scattered, scattered abroad is a translation of the word diasporas. Diaspora, rather. Diaspora. Diaspora. And it describes the process of planting seed. Diaspora. Amen? In the first century, there were two ways of planting seed. The first was to take a handful of seed and take one seed at a time. 
and very methodically and very orderly plant one seed after another in a nice, neat, orderly fashion. But that's not the word that he used here. The word used here is the word diaspora and it describes the second method of planting. Amen? Which was when a farmer would put his hand in a satchel of seed and he would grab a whole handful and begin to what? Randomly throwing seed all over the field. Are you following me now? See, that word here, that's what he's talking about right here. And that's important because why? It tells us the people who James was writing to were ripped out of their homes and they were scattered like seed. Where? All over the eastern land, all over the Roman Empire. See, when they were scattered, what happened? They lost their homes. They lost their businesses. In many cases, they lost many other, mem other members of the family because why? They were so quickly uprooted and scattered across the land. Now, we know when it began, because you go to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, this particular scattering began right here in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Tell your neighbor, stay with him today. Notice what it says here. And Saul was what? Consenting unto his death. And at that time, somebody say at that time, there was a what? Great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were what? They were all scattered abroad, amen, which is the same Greek word diaspora throughout the what? Region of Judea and Samaria, and except the what? Except the apostles. And see, this is when Stephen was stoned to death. You remember that? Amen. See, what happened was when the Jewish leaders got a taste of Stephen's blood, they felt invigorated to persecute the church. And it says here there was a what? Great persecution. Somebody say great persecution. Now, the word great here is a Greek word mega. That means it was enormous. This was widespread. And the word persecution is the Greek word diancho, which means to hunt. Somebody said to hunt. So a better translation would read, there was a great hunt against the church which was at Jerusalem. And see, like, just like a hunter, what did a hunter do? The hunter puts on his gear. And what's he do? He follows the track of an animal. He follows the scent of the animal. And see, those early Jewish leaders begin to what? Follow the track and the scent of the believers. And it was literally a great hunt against the church. They hunted, the people, they hunted them down. And at that moment, the believers began to be scattered all over the eastern lands of the Roman Empire. And this right here leads up, up to the book of James. It leads us to where? Leads us up to the what? Book of James. James is writing to that group of believers. And by the time James writes them, 
They had been scattered approximately 20 years. Somebody say 20 years. So for 20, listen to this now, for 20 years, they've been standing in faith for what they lost to be restored to them. <laughs> and you think you got it bad. For 20 years, they've been waiting for their families to be restored to them. For 20 years, they've been waiting for the return of their finances. For 20 years, they've been standing in faith. <laughs> but still, they see no results. I know that's none of y'all. But still they see what? No results. So from all over the eastern lands of the Roman Empire, now they're writing James, the leader of the church. They're writing him letters asking him theological questions. And of course they would write to James because why? He's the half-brother of Jesus. He should know something. Come on, say amen, somebody. Who would know better than him? And see, James was visible simply because of who he was, folks. And now as the pastor of the Jerusalem church, he's receiving communication from the scattered Jews that are suffering, and we see, and we see exactly what they're asking him because why? He answers them in verse 13. This is exactly what they're asking him. James 1.13, it says, he says, Let no man say, when he is what? Tempted, I am what? Tempted of God, for God cannot be what? Tempted with evil, neither tempted he what? Any man. Now when he says, let no man say, when he is tempted, this is a very strong rebuke, folks. This wasn't no say, don't say this. No, this is, let no man say. It was a strong rebuke. Say it was a strong rebuke. It is him saying, I hear what y'all saying, but I don't like what you're saying. What you're saying is not right, and I want you to stop this right now. Let no man say. Can you hear it? How dare you equate this as, as if it came from God? Let no man say. Stop it now. So we know what they're saying because he tells us, he says, let no man say when he is tempted. I am tempted of God. The word tempted here is the Greek word parosmos. Parosmos, which is always negative. And it means a putting to proof by experience of evil. Say it again. Put into proof by experience of evil, it describes something that is destructive. Are you with me out here? This verse is really saying, let no man say when he is being crushed. Let no man say when he is being destroyed that I'm being crushed and destroyed by God. Don't say it's God. Now, what's also important where it says, I am tempted of God. Look at that word of. Somebody say O-F, of. The word of is the Greek word apo. And it means to do something remotely. Somebody say remotely. 
You know, instead of getting up and pushing the button on the TV, you got a remote control. <laughs> Everybody know about that, right? You know, you tell your child to go get the remote control. It's sitting right beside you. Come on. <laughs> Hand me the remote control. Come on, say <laughs> Amen. But it means something remotely, which means they were saying, this is what they were saying. They were saying, now we know that God did not personally do this, but remotely from a distance. I mean, God is God. Come on. And if God wanted to stop this, listen to this, what they're saying now. This because people out here say the same thing. If God wanted to stop this, God could have stopped it. And since God didn't stop this, somehow in some strange, mysterious way, Apple, from a distance, remotely, God has allowed these tragic events to happen. No, he didn't do it directly. But remotely, from a distance, God has somehow allowed these events to happen. And when James heard, his, heard this, his answer was real simple. He said, shut up. Don't talk like this. How dare you talk like this? Let no man say. How dare you allege that God would even remotely permit these things to happen to you? This is not God at all. Jane Abbott, this is not God at all. See, this is from the lips of Jesus' own brother, folks. Come on, you with me out here. Now, the question is, why they believe like that? Understand this. It was easy for Jewish believers to think like that because why? In the Old Testament, there was no clear-cut revelation of the devil. Did you hear me? There was no clear-cut revelation of the devil. Amen? So in the Old Testament, people generally thought everything came from God. You read the Old Testament, that's what it looks like. God did this. God did that. So it looks like everything came from God. So if a flood came, they thought it was from God. If a disease came, it was attributed to God. If war came, they thought it was God. See, that was the attitude of the Old Testament, that everything comes from God. Come on. They believe it's all the will of God who does everything sovereignly. <laughs> now, these believers, as he's, ta he's talking to, now these believers who are Jewish. Remember, they're Jewish folks. And they've been standing in faith. But they're not seeing any results and like believers always do, when they don't see results, they begin to wonder, maybe I'm believing for the wrong thing. Maybe my doctrine is not right. And they begin to wonder, maybe God in some way, apple from a distance, remotely has somehow allowed these things to pass into my life. So rather for me to resist these things, instead I throw open my arms and I embrace these things as if it's the will of God. And that's what denominational churches do. Come on, are you with me out here? 
But listen to this. It was Jesus who brought us the revelation of the devil. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It was Jesus who brought us the revelation of the devil. And that's why they blamed everything on God, because they had no revelation of the devil. Matthew 4, 1. When Jesus' ministry began, it says, Then was Jesus what? Led up of the Spirit in the wilderness to be what? But tempted of who? The devil. Come on, a light shined on them when he said that. A light shined on them that sat in darkness. Jesus began to turn the light that there was a good God in heaven. There was a bad devil on the earth. Come on, you with me out here. And a good God did good things and a bad devil did bad things. It was Jesus who really brought that revelation. And up to that time, that revelation did not exist. So James speaks to his readers who were Jews and they were now thinking like Old Testament Jews wondering maybe God awful from a distance remotely is somehow mysteriously allowing these things to happen to us. Why? So he can, he can conform us to his image. That's an insult. Come on. That's an insult that God would have to use tragedy to change us. Let me say it again. It's an insult that God would have to use, have to use tragedy to change us. And, says, and James says here, I don't even want to hear it. Let no man say. How dare you say God has anything to do with this? You know, that's what people said about Irma and Maria. And even believers said the same thing. Oh, come on, say amen, somebody. Look at James 1.13 again. He said, let no man say when he is tempted parosmos, when he's being crushed, when he's being destroyed, say, I am what? Tempted of God. In other words, I'm being crushed and destroyed by remote permissive will of God. And James says, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He cannot. Tell you never, he cannot. Now, if anyone ever asks you, is there anything God cannot do? Say, there's, yes, there is something God cannot do. This verse says God cannot be tempted with evil. That's something God cannot, be, cannot do. Come on, you with me out here. See, the Greek word, the Greek means God is incapable of responding to evil. He's incapable of what? Responding to evil. God knows nothing of evil, folks. He has no evil. The only time evil tried to get into his presence, guess what? God quickly removed it from heaven. Come on, you with me out here. Amen. So God remotely, now he remotely experienced it on the cross of Christ. But as far as God the Father goes, he has no experience with evil whatsoever. So he has no evil to give anybody else. You didn't get that. So he has no evil 
to give anybody else. That's why at the end he says, neither tempted he any man with evil. Because he has no evil to give. He doesn't have any, therefore he cannot use this to change somebody. Let me say it again. He doesn't have any evil, so therefore he cannot use evil to change somebody. Which you hear all the time. God brought this on to change somebody. Come on. Neither he what tempted any man with what? Evil. It's simply an impossibility for God to use evil to change you. Somebody say impossibility. Now, we already believe this. What I'm doing right now is giving you scriptural support for what you believe. So the question arises, what does God give? Now, we've just seen that God doesn't give evil, right? We've seen what he doesn't give, right? James just said God never uses anything destructive. Ain't that what he said? Which means cancer is never from God. It fails the test. Bankruptcy is never from God. Come on, it fails the test. Divorce is never from God. It fails the test. See, all of these destructive things that come to steal, kill, and destroy, they are never sent by God. Somebody say never. Come on, say never. So the question is, if you listen, if you believe those things are sent by God, that means you have a very theological problem. Hello? Look at Isaiah 53, 4. If you believe these things are, those things are sent by God, that means you have a very serious theological problem. Because Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And you got to look at it like Jesus. Look at it like this. Jesus became this big, huge net. And everything that was destined to be put on us, he caught and took it upon himself. Come on, say amen, somebody. Now listen to me now. For God to put sickness on you, God would have to literally say, Jesus, excuse me. I know that you were the net that caught all that affliction. I know you took all this punishment for those people. But I'm going to afflict them anyway. And God would have to walk around the work of the cross. And God is not going to do that. To your neighbor, God's not going to do that. So the question is, then what does God give? What does God give? And guess what? We're going to talk about that next Wednesday. All his bowed eyes closed in prayer. <laughs> we'll find out what God gives next Wednesday. Stay tuned to part two. <laughs> All his bowed eyes closed in prayer. <laughs> Glory to God. Hallelujah. Come on, let's give God praise. Give God glory. Let's give God honor. Hallelujah.
Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. So you got to be careful when you get in conversations, folks. And people start saying, well, God needed to teach these people a lesson. God needed to show them who he was. So he took a boat of lightning down and made them a little crispy critter so everybody know <laughs> that he's a big God. He didn't like what they were doing. <laughs> What they fail to realize is you have a devil out here. And he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Come on, say amen, somebody. And a lot of things that happen to people, a lot of things they bring upon themselves. Did you hear me? They caused it. Hallelujah. I mean, some people just help the devil. <laughs> they helped the devil. The devil said, okay, boy, y'all just, y'all made this thing easy. <laughs> Hallelujah. But God did not come to kill, steal, and destroy. He came that you might have a life and have life more abundantly. So like, like James says, don't let it even come out your mouth that God did anything bad to you. To try to teach you a lesson. He doesn't need the devil's tactics to teach you a lesson. Hallelujah. Lift your hands and begin to give God praise. Come on, give God glory. Come on, give God honor. Hallelujah.